This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Alex Hall Hall, and this is Disorder, the podcast where we try to make sense of our mad, mad, and for the purposes of today's episode, bad, bad world. This is a special bonus episode coming immediately after the Munich Security Conference, on the eve of which we heard the shocking news of the murder of Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny. We'll be discussing what impact the news of his murder had on the conference and how the assembled security experts felt the international community should respond. The Munich Security Forum was set up in 1963 as the world's leading forum for debating international security policy. Its flagship event, which just took place last weekend, is its gathering of hundreds of the world's top security experts and decision makers in Munich each year to debate and hopefully come up with solutions for the world's most pressing security concerns. Last year, despite the ongoing war in Ukraine, or perhaps actually because of it, the conference took place in relatively optimistic circumstances because the Russian invasion wasn't going well. The Ukrainians were putting up a mighty defence, and the Euro-Atlantic alliance seemed to have found new purpose in its support for Ukraine. This year was a different story. The Ukrainians' much-heralded spring offensive failed to deliver significant results. Indeed, just on the eve of the conference, Ukrainian forces pulled back from the city of Avdivka. Russia's economy seems to have found ways to work around sanctions. International support for Ukraine has looked a bit uncertain. Hungary nearly managed to derail agreement on the latest package of support from the EU. And as has been extensively reported in the press, US aid to Ukraine is currently held up in Congress and Ukrainians are having to ration their use of weapons, making a tough task even harder. And then, right on the eve of the conference, we heard the devastating news that Russia's most prominent opposition politician, Alexei Navalny, had died in prison, suggesting Putin now feels he can act with complete impunity. So what was the mood like at this year's conference, and how should the Euro-Atlantic community respond to these challenges? To give us insights into these questions... I'm delighted to be joined today by European security expert Nico Lang. He's a senior fellow at the Munich Security Conference, a former chief of staff at the German Ministry of Defence, a non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis think tank. So Nico, just before the conference began, we all heard the bombshell devastating news about the death of Alexei Navalny, or I will say the murder, because there's no doubt in my mind that Putin killed him. How did that 
affect the conference? What was it like when that news broke through the conference? It was a shock. It also led immediately to anger. It was very personal for many because over the years, I think many people at Munich Security Conference had personal interactions with Alexei Navalny, with Yulia Navalnaya. Many of us know also the whole family and the children. And you don't have to forget when he was attacked with Novichok and almost killed, he was treated in Germany. So many saw him during that time, were together with him and the family, and many tried to convince him not to go back to Russia. And what you heard on the corridors in Munich also was that most of the people I talked did not believe that the communication just at the time when the Munich Security Conference was about to open, that this was an accidental. It seemed like a mental naya a mental warfare move from Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's such a shocking thought, the idea that he has become so emboldened and defiant that he can just deliberately time Navalny's death for the eve of what is what most people regard as the most significant international security conference of the year. Is that how people interpreted it, that it was a deliberate challenge? Well, at least when it comes to the communication on that Friday, that's how many people interpreted it. And of course, everybody immediately understood this is a murder. And everything we see after the day now with access not given to the body for the family and the lawyers just confirms that thought. I'm personally not surprised. I think Putin is somebody who is beyond being a rational leader of a country. It's a dictator who lives in history books and is using violence to fulfill what he perceives as historic missions. I don't know if anybody at the Munich Security Conference still has illusions about Putin being something different. So I noticed from the record of the conference proceedings that a lot of European political figures were issuing very, very strong statements expressing their absolute outrage at what had happened with Navalny, as well as, of course, the continuing disaster that is Ukraine. But do you think they're going to be able to react beyond words? My summary of Munich Security Conference 2024 is that especially the Europeans in NATO have problems in following up on their words with action. It has to translate into action. So what is the consequence for Putin now? Where are the sanctions? Where are the measures taken? How are we stepping up on helping Ukraine to win the war against Russia? Sometimes one gets the feeling we have heard all those words before. Let's do something and let's get together as Europeans, especially with the blockade that is happening in the United States, to dig deeps into our stocks to find more ammunition, equipment for Ukraine to make a difference on the battlefield right now. That would be the right reaction. So were any concrete commitments made at the conference? There were concrete commitments made, very remarkable commitments. For example, Mette Frederiksen, the Prime Minister of Denmark, said at the conference that Denmark will transfer all the artillery howitzers they have, all the artillery ammunition they have, will transfer all of it to Ukraine to help winning the war against Russia. There were others like the Czech president, Peter Pavel, who said they found 800 rounds of artillery ammunition to be able to transfer it to Ukraine. Yes, there were people stepping up, but there is the big question, what are the big Europeans doing? Germany is doing a lot more than others. 
but still can do more. But what about France? What about Italy? What about Spain? We are not hearing enough from them. So Zelensky, just before the conference, signed new defence deals with both Germany and France. Aren't those pretty substantive? And also, of course, the UK two or three weeks ago as well. I think this is a step forward. And I remember when Anders Volk Rasmussen and Andrei Yermak came up with the Kiev Security Compact that many people were skeptical. But now there is a G7 declaration and there are bilateral agreements with three countries. And in addition to the G7, who all will close such agreements, there are now 25 more countries part of that umbrella of having bilateral security assistance agreements with Ukraine. This is not a replacement for NATO membership. This is not hard security guarantees, of course, but it's a patchwork of commitments that will help Ukraine to build a future military force and to have a sustainable war effort and to provide for its security. So this is a step forward. The UK agreement, I think, still goes a little bit further than the German one or the French one. But let's see. There are now coalitions in different areas. Some countries working more on air defense, some countries working more on drones, some more on artillery. And I think this is a good framework to help Ukraine. It is a bit depressing, though, that it is such a sort of desperate patchwork of support. I mean, I think that word you used indicates the problem Zelensky has, which is that Ukraine is having to travel around the Western alliance, just begging for a few more weapons here, a slightly bigger kind of launcher there. And of course, we still have the massive aid package being held up in the US Congress. It's not yet we're going to pull together a grand coalition and do exactly what it takes. It's the patchwork nature of it. So Ukraine can never be sure if they use up all their ammunition in six months' time, will another tranche come? That's a real problem because already now Ukraine has to economize resources on the battlefield. Even the projection of US elections or possible support not coming in changes the dynamics on the battlefield. So A clearer commitment, a more unified commitment would, of course, help Ukraine more. Ukraine is trying to counterbalance this. And there was progress made on that front in Munich by talking to Western industrial players and technological players directly, uh, ramping up common production in Ukraine, offering possibilities for those companies to be active, to multiply production, to have cooperations with Ukrainian companies. But of course, this takes time. And I'm afraid the slow approach led by the US, but then followed by all Western partners, is creating a gap for a few months now until the new industrial production can kick in. That's why a new initiative, especially by the Europeans, to deliver whatever they can find now in their own countries and on the world markets to Ukraine I think it's very necessary. Now, you are actually a real Ukraine and Russia expert. You speak both Russian and Ukrainian fluently. You've lived and worked in both countries. When were you most recently in Ukraine? And what is your sense of the sort of morale and, you know, mood like in Ukraine? Yeah, I'm going to Ukraine frequently. I have been there for the last time just a few weeks ago. The mood is grim. And of course, it's more difficult now after the counteroffensive brought some results, especially on the sea, Odessa port being freed and with pressure applied to Crimea, but did not bring the breakthrough in the south of Ukraine that many people hoped for. 
And of course, everybody is worried about the lack of resources and uh, very high probability that after Avdiivka, we will see more cities in the East being under pressure or even being lost. But at the same time, the Ukrainians, they give not room for any doubt. They will continue the fight. They will do what is necessary to give as much losses as possible to the Russian side. And they are still very, very committed to defending their homeland. I sometimes worry about us if the Ukrainians, expressed also by President Zelensky in Munich, if they are the psychological advisors to us, telling us that we are strong, that we can do more, that we should trust in our own strength, it should be us giving them that advice. Yeah, that's right. I have a good quote from Zelensky from the Munich conference saying, Ukrainians have been holding on for 724 days. Would you have believed 723 days ago that this was even possible? I mean, it seems to me the Ukrainians, they have to keep fighting because they actually don't have any other choice. There is no option for them if they don't keep fighting, Russia's going to keep moving on and taking over their whole country. So they don't have a choice. I just want to put it to you, is there a chance that Putin may have miscalculated that actually the sheer brazenness and the sheer atrociousness of the news of Navalny's death might actually be just the jolt in the arm that's necessary to jolt the alliance and say, come on, we actually have to keep fighting. We have to keep supporting Ukraine. We have to get our act together and maybe even persuade Congress we have to get that aid package through. Is there a chance that Putin might have miscalculated here and this could backfire? I think there is a chance. And let's remind ourselves, Putin has miscalculated a lot of things all of the time throughout this war. Putin is surely not a strategic genius that we all have to be afraid of. Putin has started a war where he did not achieve a single of his war aims. He is continuing the war because his best hope is that there might be a political opening depending on election results in the US and in other countries. But basically, apart from destroying cities in Ukraine, in the east of the country, he is not really capable of conducting big operations or doing something that is strategically decisive. The problem is a little bit that we have this kind of sinus wave in our reactions. Last year at Munich Security Conference, we had the feeling we are back, we are supporting Ukraine. And maybe it was a little bit too self-congratulatory. And this year it was a little bit more of doom and gloom and a very dark mood when it came to Russia and Ukraine. And I think both of it is not really justified. Yes, losing Avdiivka is bad for Ukraine, but from a strictly military point of view, a flexible defense where you administer losses to the Russian side and then you retreat to the next position and then you do that again is a sound approach, especially with limited resources. So let's not overexpress everything into one or the other direction. The effect of the Navalny murder, and I will continue to call it like that, I think plays out domestically, and I can feel it already in the German parliament, and it might be true also in the US Congress, that people who were opposing certain steps taken are at least rethinking what they are doing. And Putin is miscalculating very often, but he is very often profiting from us being too afraid to make him lose. 
And I think that fear has to go away. Especially as having served as ambassador in Georgia and watched the invasion of Crimea in 2014 and the West's hesitation to enforce the non-use of chemical weapons in Syria. And time and again, we keep sort of holding ourselves back. We're worried about provoking Putin. We're worried about escalating the situation. And it does seem, I mean, you said earlier on, it seems to be us. We're being held back by this psychological paralysis and nervousness of the consequences. So how do we turn this sense of outrage into concrete action? I mean, what is it going to take to really commit to doing stuff, not just saying stuff? I think the most important thing is to address the strategic mistake that we made beginning in the White House and then followed by others, not all, but some. And the strategic mistake was to believe if we have a kind of a measured military assistance to Ukraine, Russia will deny it achieving its war aims, then this will lead to a freezing of the front lines, a ceasefire, and then a possibility for peace. And I think we have to understand now that this hypothesis was wrong, the strategic approach was a mistake, it leads to a long war with the Ukrainians suffering and to a possibility for Putin to come up with new ideas to move things forward into his direction. The strategic mistake has to be corrected and then a clear aim has to be formulated. And the aim can only be to enable Ukraine to decisively beat the Russian armed forces on the territory of Ukraine in order to regain control over its territory. This is militarily possible. It's not even totally outlandish to calculate the resources needed for that. But only if we correct the strategic mistake and formulate the clear aim, then we can build a strategy that is working towards this aim. And so far, some countries are avoiding this kind of strategic discussion. Right. I think it still comes back to this psychological issue of we still tend to be reacting to what Putin does rather than deciding for ourselves what is the outcome we want to see here. And if it's Ukrainian victory, what do we need to do to deliver that? We've been giving enough support to stop Ukraine losing, but we haven't yet come to terms with the idea that, no, we actually want Ukraine to win. And if we are clear on that objective, then we can align our resources accordingly. Exactly. And maybe Putin making bad judgments, maybe the murder of Alexei Navalny, but also the outrageous remarks by Medvedev and others, make clear Russia is at the moment absolutely unwilling to negotiate. It wants to push further. And there has to be uh, understanding produced that we have to support Ukraine to at least develop things into a military situation where Russia is starting to be willing to have a real talk. And my sense is that there is a growing consensus about that question and that some resources are tapped into that people were hesitant tapping into before. I heard the last days for the first time that there might be willingness in the US to deliver attack MS with higher ranges of 300 kilometers and with monoblock warheads. And also in Germany, the parliament is about to pass a resolution that is pushing for the delivery of long-range weapons, meaning Taurus. So there might be something moving on that front. That leads me very nicely onto the sort of other context and the other big name who wasn't there at the conference, 
Putin wasn't there. Sadly, Navalny wasn't there, was the big absentee. And of course, Donald Trump is the other big name who presumably the comments he's made about NATO, about his willingness to come to the defense of any European country that was attacked by Russia, if they weren't contributing at least 2% of their GDP towards NATO. The whole prospect of a Trump presidency, I'm guessing, was the second issue hanging over the conference. Now, you just said that maybe last year the Western alliance was sort of too self-congratulatory and too complacent. Yay, we've come together, we're doing a great job. This year, maybe they were too gloomy and we need to stop ricocheting between these two extremes. Another quote from the Munich Security Conference that I really liked was by the Norwegian Prime Minister, Jonas Garstore, who said, it is worthwhile to follow American politics but we should not let every Trump sentence tip us off balance. So how did the impact of Trump, what he said about NATO, the prospect of a Trump presidency, how did that affect discussions? Yeah, I think the truth is that he was there without being there in many rooms and in many discussions. But also we as the Munich Security Conference decided to invite people who are not supporting the support for Ukraine or who are holding it hostage for the border issue that is domestically discussed in the US. And they were on stage and they were exposed to the real discussion. They were also exposed to Ukrainian veterans and to the Ukrainians uh, expressing their opinions. And also President Zelensky used the opportunity to address also Trump supporters during Munich Security Conference and to have a discussion with them. I cannot judge yet whether this has an effect, but I think it was good also to have them on stage. One of them was even booed, which I think was a premiere for Munich Security Conference to have somebody on the main stage being booed while speaking. Uh, But it was good to have that frank kind of conversation. The uh, question, I think, also made clear again for many of the Europeans The Americans will decide whatever they will decide in those elections. We really have to get better in defense technology, defense industry, relying on ourselves. We have gotten better at spending. We have now to sustain this for a longer period of time. But more countries are spending now 2% of GDP. And I mean, if we want to have an honest discussion about this, we also have to recognize if you see what the Europeans are doing in military assistance, financial assistance, humanitarian assistance to Ukraine, there is by no means any possibility to say, look, the Americans are doing everything, the Europeans are doing nothing. The situation is by far different. I think we also have to bring that point across. And one more point, engagement in Europe, NATO, uh, having bases in Europe, being able to fight wars globally with using the infrastructures in Europe. I mean, this is vital interest of the United States of America. So we should not accept the transatlantic, there's this new Trumpian transatlantic transactionalism. We should have no fear to say this is also in the interest of the United States. And it should also be, I mean, a ball that we throw back into the field of the US to have that discussion about their own interests. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, as you know, I now live in the United States and I have to say it just is not cutting through. I mean, I live just outside Washington, D.C., which is filled with foreign policy experts. The experts understand that the Europeans are contributing a lot and actually in financial terms have given more than even the U.S. 
in pure military terms, the US, of course, remains the biggest single supplier to Ukraine, but it is not cutting through outside sort of elite policy circles quite how much the Europeans are doing. And secondly, Trump is busy undoing a sort of an understanding of what the NATO alliance is there for. There is definitely a narrative growing that sort of Europeans are free riders. America is just doing Europe a favor by contributing and supporting NATO countries. And there does not seem to be that understanding that the US itself benefits from the NATO alliance and that the bases that the US has in Europe are for America's own security. So what can the Europeans do to try and reach out and push back on that Trump narrative? Well, I'm afraid this is not unique only for the United States. It seems to be that finding democratic legitimacy for a reasonable foreign and security policy is difficult in many countries now. The only way to generate democratic legitimacy is to talk to people, to take them seriously, to have discussions, to bring arguments and to show leadership. We as the Munich Security Conference, we decided to get out of Bayerischer Hof and out of meetings with diplomats and ministers and heads of states and government into the country in Germany. And we're traveling the country up and down with something that we call Zeitenwende on tour, where we have town hall discussions with people about the need for a different German foreign and security policy, with a discussion about delivering weapons to Ukraine, ramping up defense industries, spending more on defense. I'm afraid there is no other way than to have those discussions, not leave the field just to the other side. We're going to take a short break now, but afterwards, we're going to delve a little bit more into how Germany in particular is responding to today's new security challenges. All right, so you used to be chief of staff at the German Defense Ministry, so you know the inside story on Germany's military situation. So how successful has Chancellor Schultz's famous Zeitenwender been? That's the announcement he made two years ago, immediately after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that there would be a turning point in Germany's military approach. And he announced that Germany would establish this huge 100 billion euro fund to modernize Germany's armed forces. So two questions. How is that going? And how is the German public responding? Are you managing to change the psychology in Germany? Well, the German public is not only responding positively to this, I think the German public would allow even to do more and to go further. And that has been like this since the Russian full-scale invasion into Ukraine. It is more within some political parties and within political elites that they have difficulties in changing their modus and move away from the positions they held, in some cases, for decades. Right. There is significant change underway in Germany, not at the speed that I would find adequate to the problem, but there are things moving into a very good direction in some areas. In some areas, there much more work is needed. But look, if Germany developing a force posture where it puts a battle-ready brigade into Lithuania, and Germany is doing something the Americans did in uh, divided Germany during the Cold War, 
And this is done against also resistance that is there against this uh, false posture. I think this is a good and very concrete move. And the first soldiers will be there already in a few weeks from now. So this is very concrete. This is real. Germany is spending 2% on defense this year. Yes, it's a trick because the special fund and the regular budget and the help for Ukraine are all added up. But still, it's a move forward. And if you see in look into increased production, there is more going on in Germany right now. So we are moving, unfortunately, slowly, but we are moving into the right direction. But of course, the most difficult discussion is yet to have. I mean, a special fund means it's extra money, it's debt. But I think the next discussion is for German parliamentarians, at least, but also for the society as a whole, that security is more important than other things. And therefore, there has to be a priority on security spending and less priority on other spending. I think that is what is underway right now. When I look at Germany, I can't believe the change from five years ago. So yes, Germany may still be moving slowly or slower than an expert like you would like, but it's still astonishing given where Germany was just three or four years ago. But as you said, this isn't just a problem for Germany. This is a problem for Europe as a whole. We have very expensive social security programs and pensions and health service schemes. And enhancing our defense is going to come at a cost. We need to spend more on defense in Europe. We have to provide for our own security. We cannot rely on the guaranteed support by the United States anymore. Everybody has understood it. The rhetorics are there. Now the action has to be taken. But there needs to be a path to growth because this can only be financed by growth. We had a phase of growth in Europe when we expanded the European Union. We expanded NATO before and then the European Union to provide security for investment, to expand a safe zone of economy and of business. And I think this is what needs to be done again. That's why it's right that Ukraine is a candidate for a member of the European Union. And I think inviting Ukraine to NATO, moving Ukraine closer to the European Union, generating growth also by innovation in the defense technology and defense industry sector, and on the basis of that getting stronger, I think that is the move Europe now needs to make. And there are some indications already there into the right direction. And we just need to be very bold on that. I think it's possible to do it. Right. So you've talked about some of the change that's going on in Germany. Then you have countries like the Balts and Poland and the UK, the Danes, the Nordics, all very strong on Ukraine. What about France? Where do you see the French position in all of this? Well, if you look at the absolute numbers and the relative numbers of French military assistance to Ukraine, France can do much more. And as one of the big industrial nations in the European Union, France should really step up. This is also true for Italy and for Spain. So if I would have to have a European summit organizing and discussing concrete next steps of supporting Ukraine to win against Russia, I would suggest to hold this kind of summit in Paris or in Rome to commit France and Italy to doing more. I think this could be a good step. But touching a bit deeper on France, what do you think is sort of going through Macron's head? I mean, rhetorically, he's been pretty supportive of Ukraine and they've just signed this new security 
partnership agreement with Ukraine. So what is it that's holding him back than going all in? I mean, and also France has traditionally been a great supporter of building up European defense and not relying just on NATO and the Americans. Yeah, I think we see something that we know uh, from the discussion in the US and some other countries, and we talked about before, it doesn't seem domestically to be very easy. And in the Assemblée Nationale, there are now far left and the far right party with large groups who are basically echoing the Russian view of things. It seems that this has an effect on the debate in France. But now there is a new situation at the beginning of the year, Ukrainian counteroffensive not being as successful as many people thought. So let's to get together with a new effort. Unfortunately, the French leadership was not uh, present in Munich, but at least France also signed a bilateral agreement with Ukraine that maybe could be now a framework for a larger French engagement. So on the US side, you had Vice President Kamala Harris as the most high-profile US attendee. Was she able to convince attendees that the U.S. was there? I mean, obviously, that was her message to reassure the alliance. How convincing was her message? Well, judging from the reactions in the hall, not very convincing. Everybody knows the domestic situation. And I think for many, as much as they appreciate that the vice president of the United States is an integral part of Munich Security Conference, I think for many... The -the behind-the-scenes dialogue with the large congressional delegation was, at this moment in time, of more relevance. Yeah. So you mentioned that one of the U.S. participants was booed, and you also mentioned that there were efforts to arrange meetings between Ukrainian veterans and between President Zelensky and U.S. attendees. Now, I understand that some of the U.S. attendees, like Republican Senator J.D. Vance, just flat out refused to meet Zelensky and said, oh, well, I won't learn anything new. And then another regular attendee at the Munich Security Forum, Senator Lindsey Graham, for the first time in decades, I think, decided not to come. He dropped out of the delegation right on the eve of the conference. And he was one of the senators who blocked the most recent vote on aid to Ukraine. That tells quite a lot, right? Well, it says something about them, not about Munich Security Conference. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to end with two last areas of questioning. One is, we are looking forward to the NATO summit in Washington later this year. It's the 75th anniversary of NATO's establishment. It's facing arguably the biggest security challenge with a resurgent Russia and in the invasion of Ukraine, and also these question marks over Donald Trump's commitment to the alliance. Do you think NATO will be able to reach consensus on admitting Ukraine as a member? At this point in time, we should not give up too early. It doesn't look like much is possible at the moment, but let's keep pushing. And we learned from the Kiev security compact effort that many people thought nothing will come out of it. And now there will be 32 bilateral security assistance agreements for Ukraine, which is by far more than nothing. On the NATO summit in Washington, D.C., we have a particular situation because the Central Eastern Europeans anyway, but also France, 
has come forward to push for an invitation of Ukraine to NATO. And it's the US and Germany being the, at the forefront of blocking this at the moment. There is an interesting discussion behind the scenes that was also held in the working group that is led by Anders Fogh Rasmussen, former NATO Secretary General, and Andrei Yamak, the head of the Office of the President of Ukraine, about possibilities to extend an invitation to start accession talks at Washington summit. And this working group will come up with an initiative. They held a press conference, Munich Security Conference, where they said they will come up with an initiative to lobby for this effort and to expand the boundaries of thinking when it comes to NATO membership of Ukraine, application of Article 5 and so on. And this is not the only initiative pushing in that direction. So I think there will be at least a very intensive discussions and maybe also some creative ideas to move forward into that direction. I have to end this interview because a lot of our listeners are British. And of course, I was a British diplomat and you are our first German guest on the podcast. Thank you very much, Nico, for coming. Oh, I feel honored. I have to end with a question about that dreaded B word, Brexit. Opinion polls in the UK increasingly suggest Brexit regret. More and more people are responding to opinion polls saying, yeah, they might quite like to rejoin the EU. What is the attitude in Germany towards the UK these days? And would there be a willingness to let us back in if we got ourselves in that position in the UK? It's difficult for me to say what the attitude in Germany is or the general mood, but certainly the majority of Germans did not really understand why Brexit was really necessary. I'm not sure most Brits did either, frankly. <laughs> I can, as the first German in this podcast, I can express my personal opinion. And my personal opinion is that the new era of geopolitics should lead to an approach by the European Union and by all countries in Europe to build a stronger alliance. And from my personal point of view, Britain should be part of the European Union again. Ukraine should be part of the European Union. The Republic of Moldova and Georgia should be part of the European Union. And Turkey should be part of the European Union as well. If we want to make a global difference, if we want to shape the world, I think then we have to be ready to expand the European Union and move it forward. And this, of course, includes also the Western Balkans, where many countries are trying to get into the European Union and are kind of in a waiting loop. A bold move like this uh, to expand the European Union, I think, could improve our position globally. So thank you very much, Nico, for that wonderful tour de force. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And I hope for our listeners that gives a sense of the security challenges facing Europe and how Europe is responding. And I have to say that despite the very depressing context in which this year's Munich Security Conference took place, I personally, when I looked at some of the statements made by the attendees, actually took some heart. And I'm going to sign off by reading this quote from the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, where he said, the world is becoming more dangerous, but NATO is becoming stronger. 
So let's hope that that's where we head into for the rest of 2024. Thank you to George McDonough, our producer, and to Neil Fern, our executive producer. You can follow us at Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. You are also welcome to email us any questions or comments on each episode at disordershow at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. We enjoy ordering the disorder with you every week. Mm-hmm.